Listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. With this episode, we launch a mini-series on the topic of retrofitting heritage buildings while simultaneously upgrading their thermal and energy performance. I think the assumption on part of the conservation officers was that we were just going to cover the wall with insulation and then replant the cornice on the face of it and actually we felt that wasn't very truthful and we would rather stop the insulation short of the cornice and short of the side walls and everyone said oh if you do that the cornice the party walls will be a cold bridge the modeling just didn't show that and and neither does the the post occupancy monitoring it's a cool bridge you know the cornice is cooler than the rest of the wall surface but it's not so cold that more condensation forms on it it's not a problem Our guest today is Oliver Smith of Fifth Studio, a practice with offices in Cambridge, London, and Oxford. It's a studio that has always interested me because of the range of scales at which they work, from stitching together pedestrian routes through the Lee Valley to the nitty-gritty of retrofitting heritage buildings. One of their most recent projects is Blocks, an open access makerspace in Enfield's six billion pound Meridian Water Regeneration Project. The building has been shortlisted in this year's AJ Architecture Awards. Before founding Fifth Studio 25 years ago, Oliver spent eight years working for Richard McCormick and six years at Sterling Wilford. Today, we're talking about the practice's major refurbishment of Newcourt at Trinity College, Cambridge, a grade one listed neo-Gothic student residence hall built in 1825. Completed in 2016, it remains a trailblazing project because of the way it pioneered a nuanced approach to balancing heritage concerns with an ambitious sustainability agenda. The refurb has resulted in an 80% reduction in carbon emissions, a remarkable achievement for a grade one listed building and its conservation methodology for listed buildings was subsequently adopted by Cambridge City Council. So Oliver, welcome to Climate Champions. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Newcourt is the most recent of a series of projects that Fifth Studio has done for Trinity College, Cambridge. The building is almost 200 years old, and I believe that the university set a 200-year design life, which is unusually long, as part of the brief. Is that right? How did that come about? Well, the, yeah, the building was nearly 200 years old before we started and, and had robustly accommodated all kinds of changes. When it started, there was no plumbing and, and students washed with a wash basin and a, and a jug on a little plinth that got set up in the courtyard in the morning. So it's, it's accommodated all of this stuff, changes of servicing, installation of gas, water, plumbing, the need for kitchens the need for 
bathrooms and showers. All of that stuff had happened and they had been dealing with repairs and dry rot outbreaks. What the college said was, we want to edit back everything that's happened. It, it had got to the point where it couldn't accommodate any more. And they said, OK, let's stop. Let's edit back. Let's put in a whole new services infrastructure. Let's properly do repairs that were undertaken in a kind of ad hoc way over the years. Let's replan for the way that students want to live now. And let's renew the bits of the fabric that are beginning to fail. And then let's make the building as sustainable as possible with a view that over 190 years, yeah, we know we'll have to change, you know, at one level furniture, at another level fans and heat pumps and and the double glazing units will break down over time and whatever. We'll have to do lots of little changes, but it, in essence, the fabric will be robust for another, let's say, 190 years. And that involved looking at what UK SIP were saying about future climate scenarios and what the probabilistic data showed in terms of when or if we were going to get rain and how that was going to happen and what temperatures are likely to be and, and how the building might accommodate that range of future climates as well as a range of future ways of occupying the building. When the services were first installed, you know, electricity and gas, it was all kind of hacked into plaster and put under floors the college said right we want all of that stuff to be accessible behind furniture paneling built-in furniture so that in years to come we don't have to damage the historic fabric anymore by ripping stuff out and putting new stuff in we can undo the paneling in a room and move or replace complete systems and so at that level the design is about making not only putting restoring the fabric to a point that it'll it'll stand up for 190 years but making it possible for all those other changes which happen over shorter timescales to happen in a much less invasive and damaging way. How did you go about setting standards for thermal performance? Was it about getting demand low enough for a heat pump to work effectively or a specific standard or in relation to the existing building fabric? We started with a rule of thumb that kind of came out of the Building Schools for the Future programme actually, which was about halving demand doubling the efficiency of the kit that met that demand and then trying to half the carbon in the supply of energy to that kit. So that got you down to a to an eighth of the carbon emissions, which was a kind of good target for 2010 when we started. And we looked at the possibility of aiming for a badge, you know, passive house or... or yeah, the only stuff that was published at the time was stuff that... Um, was coming out of Ireland, the, the um, what was it called? Joseph Little, the papers about mould. Breaking the mould, yeah. Breaking the mould, exactly. Uh, you know, which were quite alarming. I mean, I suspect over-alarming. So we said, OK, we're, gonna, we're just going to do the best we can for each element of the fabric, not aim for any specific badge, but consider the building in a holistic fashion and, if possible present at planning a thing that where every element is so intricately tied to all of the others that it can't be unpicked like a kind of shopping list where they say, well, we don't like the windows or we don't want you to do the floors or whatever. We aimed for efficient underfloor heating run from ground source boreholes and that kind of generated a peak demand target which generated a kind of target for the walls which we didn't exactly meet and a kind of target for the windows we ended up 
you know, over-insulating the roof and do, doing more with air tightness than we thought might be possible. But in order to do all of that, uh, and to go back to your question, George, we really had to understand where we were starting from. And I think Hattie published an article about that very early on. We did it. There was a drawing of all the different kinds of investigation we did. That's what I was going to ask. So explain all the things you did before you even started. What did you look at and what did you find? Well, we, we did, I mean, blower doors and, um, you know, what was the air infiltration rates, you know, and it was 11 cubic metres per metre squared. Mm. Um, and we ended up getting three. Wow. But those are the quite easy ones. I think that the one that was most revelatory was the in-situ U-value measurement. Basically, you put a sensor either side of the wall and you just monitor the heat flux through it. And if you do that over three months at a cold time of year when the inside's at kind of 20 and the outside's at kind of zero, you get a pretty good measurement of the U-value. And we had an average U-value of 0.7 on the existing fabric. Whereas a build desk computer program would tell you that that wall should have a u-value of 1 point something 0.9 to 1.1 and a sap analysis would tell you it had a u-value of 2.2 so we were 25 percent better than a computer prediction and 10 times better whatever than 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 the standard sap analysis and that meant that we didn't have to do too much insulation to get down to a target of 0.25 so does this, doing this kind of investigation, does it require deep pockets? I think that you don't require significantly deep pockets. You have to, I mean, it's more about finding really reliable guys to do the monitoring. It can save you so much money by going, oh, hang on, we want to get 0.25. We, we, we don't need to put 10 inches of insulation. We can manage with three. Saves you money, saves you space, saves you time. And it also reduces the risk of creating conditions of interstitial condensation and, and mould. You make this sound like a complete no-brainer, so why doesn't everyone do it? If anyone who's inquired about the cost has, and then decided not to do it, it's got more to do with the programme. You do need to do it in the, in the winter. You get better results in the winter. Mm-hmm. I mean, when clients ask us about it, you say, well... You know, October's the best time to start a project because then you can line up your monitoring for the winter. Peabody, uh, we used it at Peabody when we were working on the Thamesmead Towers. And that was, to, you know, the, the cost wasn't significant and the timing was right. But the other things we measured, going back to your question, Hattie, I mean, we did do quite a lot of interstitial, it's long name, interstitial hydrothermal monitoring, where you just measure what the, the flow of temperature and moisture through the wall so you could see how the wall was behaving and that gave us eventually it gave us the confidence to start modeling it accurately but then of course the models and woofy modeling is now i think quite a thing lots of people are providing it and and that's that's german moisture t- heat um, modeling system but they're, they're, the kind of databases of materials they have in their system are all kind of contemporary materials of regular density and dimension or whatever and hardly relate at all to the way that a building was a relatively cheap building was chucked up in the 1820s mm. so we there was sufficient skepticism on our part and the college's part and, and certainly on historic england's part about the validity of a model so one of the other things we did was to 
take samples of all of the external wall materials and send them up to Glasgow to Paul Baker and his team to get them to give us all the coefficients and moisture transport so we could build the woofy model around what was actually on site. Mm, that's really interesting. And then we ran IHGM monitoring under model of the existing wall with the right materials in it for sufficient length of time to be able to say, well, they match. Now, what the model is predicting is exactly what we're finding on site. The, the sceptics in the uh, heritage agencies were saying, look, it's just a model. It's just a model. How can, how can you be sure that it's accurate or in any way reflects the particularities of this building? So having kind of calibrated the model to say, look, it does reflect it, and here's the proof, that meant that when we were predicting what would happen if we added insulation and added ventilation, then that all had much more credence. And I think one of the outcomes of the project is just that that, that methodology is now just sort of accepted. You know, it's accepted that the Woofy model can accurately predict conditions in retrofit buildings and how you need to calibrate it if you need to calibrate it. You mean you need to calibrate it to the particular construction yeah, you've got? Yeah. But but more recent buildings, there's kind of less need to calibrate it because more recent buildings using more regular materials of dimensional and density kind of reliability. Mm. So what was the process of, of agreeing the proposals with the client, the council and in Historic England? We spent quite a lot of time with the college and, and a number of committees within the college working out what the brief was in terms of the accommodation that they wanted and the mix of accommodation they wanted. In terms of the thermal performance, they, the brief was, we just want you to find out how good it could be. Uh, so then the, the client and I went to the chief planner in Cambridge and said, look, this is a grade one listed building. We want to try and explore how far we can take it in terms of thermal performance and, and improvement of its uh, sustainable reduction carbon emissions etc and we're going to need you we're going to need to do this with you it's going to have to be a collaborative thing because you, you guys have ultimately got to sign off the listed building consent so how do we go about it and there were three heads of of, of work we did with them one was on the whole building physics monitoring and modeling one was on the character of the building and these you know listed interiors and how are we going to intervene in those spaces in a way that respected their character. We agreed that what we wanted to do was walk into the courtyard and think, oh, this is a early 19th century courtyard, and walk into a staircase and think, oh, this is a 19th century staircase. Or walk into a room and think, oh, this is actually a 19th century space, but it's giving me all of the comfort and amenity and sustainability I, I want from the 21st century. I think the assumption on part of the conservation officers was that we were just going to cover the wall with insulation and then replant the cornice and the dados where there were any um, on the face of it and actually we felt that wasn't very in a kind of modernist way that wasn't very truthful and and we would rather stop the insulation short of the cornice and and short of the side walls because there were there are a lot of accepted wisdoms about cold bridges and everyone said, oh, if you do that, the cornice will be a cold bridge and, the, and the, the party walls will be a cold bridge and you must return the insulation a metre back along the party wall. The modelling just didn't show that. 
and I, and and neither does the the the, the post occupancy monitoring. It's a cool bridge. You know, the cornice is cooler than the rest of the wall surface, but it's not so cold that that condensation forms on it. Never drops below 16 degrees. It's not a problem. And what it does mean is that when you go into the room, you can read the the outline of the, the original room, and then you can see that this completely mute white plane has been offered into it, and the cornice is where it always was. So taking the different elements in turn, the external walls had a cement-based render that had been applied, and which was kind of keeping the damp in, I think. Is, is it was that keeping right? the damp in, and, and it was cracking up and falling off. Mm. And, and so we removed all of that and um, replaced it with, with lime render. And a lime render that was kind of colour matched to... So the original building had, had Roman render, which was an early 19th century thing, and then a lime wash, which was a lovely ochre colour, and there were fragments of it left. And the new lime render matches that, but more importantly, it's vapour permeable, the walls now breathe. And the work from Archimetrics is showing that actually it's breathing very healthily. But on the inside, there was a whole catalogue of alternative internal finishes had been applied. You know, there were areas that had been tiled to try and keep the damp out. There was a lot of waterproof render. There was gypsum plaster. So we took all that off and we put a very thin coat of lime plaster back and then bonded our wood fibre insulation to that. And that has that, that that's finished on the room side with Firmacell, which is a, a vapour permeable recycled paper and gypsum product. So how did you deal with air tightness and, and moisture risks in the walls? Well, the, the convention was that you should use membranes and tapes. We decided after some exploration that our lime render was going to be a very good air tightness membrane. And that where we had a window case, for example, we would use a tape to tape the window casing to the to to the render and then again um, we use tapes to tape that lime render to the screed we put into the floor so we achieved yeah air, air tightness of th- about three meter cube per meter square but in a very low-tech way and one of the lessons we learned was the british construction industry does not train people to do this kind of work we couldn't find a contractor who had experience of doing sustainable construction you know, passive house or other, and worked with listed buildings. Is that changing now? I think it is, uh, just through experience and and, and a lot of dissemination of, of how this project and other projects have gone. Did you do lots of toolbox talks? So, yeah, we did a lot of toolbox talks, and so did Seeger, the tapes people, and so did uh, the render people, you know, we we are not training building operatives to to use lime plaster. It has completely different requirements to gypsum plaster. You know, I can't really blame them for this, but it was a bit weird that, that they wanted to make everything absolutely vertical and absolutely plain across a room. And they were talking about, we're going to have to dub this wall out, you know, 40, 50 millimetres. And you say, no, there's nothing wrong with a wall being a bit wonky. That's an old wall. Just, you know, go with a wonk. And... <laughs> They, they had a lot of trouble with that, conceptually, because it goes against their training. Let me ask you about windows. Windows are a, a huge issue when retrofitting historic buildings. And so what options did you explore and what did you end up doing? 
we wanted to use new triple glazed windows that match the sight lines of the old windows. That was seen to be a completely unacceptable loss of historic fabric. So we explored 15 alternatives um, from using secondary glazing, which was the default historic England preference, to double glazing the existing windows and combinations of double and triple glazing in different layers. And they were all assessed against the peak heat demand and and anything that, that led to what the floor, a heated floor could deliver in terms of heat was kind of ruled out. We ended up using slimline double glazing in the existing windows, but the existing windows routed to receive a whole lot of new uh, draft proofing, weather proofing, the whole kind of Ventrola um, toolkit for airtight sash pulleys and things like that. And that got us over the line. We could use a rolled glass outer on the outer leaf in the double glazed units, which gave the college and the authorities the kind of requisite ripply reflection. So characterful of, I mean, the fact that most of the windows in the courtyard had been replaced with plate glass or float glass at some stage over the previous 190 years didn't seem to matter. We had to recreate a historic appearance in every window. How did the heritage and energy issues affect the layout and designs of the interior spaces? I think the the main effect was that we wanted to keep high sources of moisture generation, like showers, away from the outside walls so that the moisture load created by those could be drawn out by the MVHR system. Is that working? Yes, and it, it is. And, and even in places where, for one reason or another... There's a number of accessible rooms created on the ground floor where the shower room had to be against the outside wall. Even the conditions there are fine. Because I would think students would be notoriously bad at paying attention to, you know, putting fans on or off or anything of that nature. Yeah, so there are no no student-controlled fans. We use all the common areas and the staircases that kind of return plenum for that. And again, that, that, that seems to be working very well. There are very low levels of CO2 build up in the spaces even after kind of fairly high levels of occupancy and and certainly no issues in the in the shower rooms and kitchens that's fantastic different topic did does the project include pvs we got consent for pvs that's what i thought yeah but they haven't gone on yet uh, i mean it was a very interesting debate at, at the planning committee that there were people who said you know this shouldn't be allowed and the politicians saying well actually if if cambridge is adopting a policy of reducing carbon emissions as much as possible, then it's really important that we do show that we can accept those technologies and that they are an integrated part of our historic environment. So what are your thoughts on procurement for retrofitting historic buildings? You've touched on the, the issues about, about skills for on-site. I guess there's also a lot of kind of consultant input that's, that's needed as well. Yes, I think you have to do this work on a traditional contract basis. It can't be left to the vagaries of a design and build process. I mean, the contractor ended up with many times more supervising staff than they had predicted. And as is, as is well known, we, we, we had a daily site presence. Because in opening up a 190-year-old building, you find stuff. And you don't want to delay the project. You want to be able to respond to it in a way that is considering not only 
the kind of buildability and the ease for the contractor, but the effect that's going to have on the whole building physics, we don't want to introduce something that's vapour impermeable at a critical point simply because that's the easiest thing to do. So, yeah, we did have a high, very visible site presence and our own office on site. And I think that you probably have to do that if you're retrofitting a grade one listed building. I guess in the big scheme of, you know, overall project cost, the, the fees to do that are not a deciding factor. So you've had the building performance evaluation running from the inception of the project through completion in 2016, and, and it continues today. Yeah. Um, so uh, my understanding is that a condition of the listed building consent was that the building would be monitored for seven years after, yeah. after completion. And so what is the scope of what you're monitoring now? And does it include interviews with students? The college do that anyway. And if I think they've just finished the, the latest round of student uh, interviews. In terms of the building fabric monitoring, we've got, I think... 12 locations where we've got interstitial hydrothermal gradient monitoring so we know what the conditions in the walls are on each elevation at different heights we are monitoring the co2 levels we're monitoring the conditions of those exposed bits of what were what were thought to be cold bridges so we know that they're not cold and there are joist ends buried in walls that we're we're keeping an eye on and one of, the, one of the great outputs of the monitoring is that a couple of years ago, a tennis ball was lodged in a gutter outflow and it caused the gutter to back up and it hadn't appeared in the rooms and so there was no, kind of no decorative damage, but archimetrics were able to spot that, that we were getting a, a massive spike in uh, relative humidity in, in, a, in a certain section of the wall and, and flagged it up to the college who went and said, oh yeah, well, there's a tennis ball and the gutter's overflowing. So it's actually an amazing early warning system as well as providing kind of long-term comfort. When you're getting so much data out of a building every day, how often is it being looked at and, and by whom? And how often do you actually get a report? Well, the college have taken it on board, but for the first couple of years, I was getting a you know, several hundred page report and, <laughs> and condensing it down to a sort of two-page summary for the college committees to digest. Yeah, it's a lot of data, but um, I don't know if you know Archimetrics, but I should give them a plug. I mean, they build all their own monitoring kit, they install it. They they do that first step of of translating data into knowledge. After a while, you, you know what you're looking for. You know, there's one line on the graph that really matters. Did you opt for any kind of automated, you know, windows would open automatically? If no, and that's partly my preference to try and make things as simple as possible, but we did have Bill Bordas as one of our kind of um, eminence grise, looking over our shoulders, you know, and you know the whole useful buildings, trust me, you know, the more complicated you make it, the more likely it is to go wrong. Mm. I mean, we did do some things which did complicate it and which I probably wouldn't do again. So we said, if a student opens a window during the heating season, that the heating will set back to you know, 10 degrees or whatever because they shouldn't need to. And if they've had a party and they need to ventilate the room, that's fine, but they shouldn't expect it to be warm at the same time. So we did things like that, and we built in a, an absence detector, which said if students are away and they're away for more than 24 hours, then everything in the room sets back to kind of a default much lower level. 
I think those made the BMS system more complicated than it needs to be, and it probably wasn't cheap. And I don't think you'd do it again. And I'm afraid they have worked out how to hack the system. Mm-hmm. They've downloaded the operational manuals for the for the room thermostats and stuff, and the college have found that some students have overridden the minimum heat or the maximum heat levels. But that's the problem with overeducated people with too much time on their hands. Thinking about the the level of monitoring that's appropriate on a on a heritage project, yeah. When when do you think monitoring should be within a project? Also, were there any discrepancies that you found between what had been modelled and and what was in situ? Uh, the discrepancies were all positive, i.e., the buildings performed better than the modelling, and I hope that the monitoring of Newcourt means that lots of other projects don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. Because in a way, the monitoring is proof of concept. It's proof of the methodology. And as long as the methodology is kind of rolled out in an appropriate way on subsequent projects, then you shouldn't need to do that monitoring. There will be particularly sensitive or significant buildings where there's a kind of degree of nervousness that suggests that you, you might do that. But I think for most of the listed buildings in the country, and you know, other than cathedrals and whatever, you might not need to. You ought to be able to say, well, actually, we followed this methodology. We've got some monitoring before we started. We know our modelling is, is accurate and kind of calibrated. And, the, and therefore, we shouldn't need to do seven years of pretty intense monitoring. Because you're confident content. about that you're, you know yeah. what's going to happen before yeah. you start. Oliver, before we move on, can you just give us a quick recap of the methodology? You've got to know exactly how the building performs before you start. So what its strengths and weaknesses are in terms of the way it deals with heat and moisture. You've got to model it and not delude yourself about the outcomes you're going to get. And that's why I think not aiming for Enerfit or one of those standards is a really good move because you just need to do the best you can with the building and if you if you impose you know a burden on it in terms of too much insulation you could then end up creating problems that's about it really it's quite simple i mean i think you know the issues of comfort and well-being are increasingly high on the radar and i think we've known for a long time that Buildings that are unhealthy for the fabric are also unhealthy for people that live in them. So how do we roll this out more quickly? And it's, it's beginning to happen in, in, in a kind of ra- a rather unexpected way. There, there are a whole load of retrofit projects that are rising out of the Salix funding, the public sector decarbonisation funding. I mean, that, that has its own extraordinary constraints. You only get funding if your costs are less than a certain threshold per tonne of carbon saved over the lifetime of the building and it has very 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 short time scales so what we've had to do on 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 the ones we're working on is to really edit back the kind of moves you make so you a you haven't got a very complicated construction project that's with with number of subcontractors and the main builder and you you really kind of concise in terms of a limited number of people on site doing a very limited amount of stuff that's going to get you most bang for your buck and get you significant enough reduction of demand to enable you to install a heat pump that's going to work efficiently enough within the cost threshold 
And so there are a whole, a whole raft of projects coming forward that are dealing with that constraint in a much more incisive way than, for example, Newcourt is. But on Newcourt, we kind of didn't know when we started what was going to work. It's led to certainly on our work since looking at the, the, the kind of array of stuff we did at Newcourt and saying, OK, well, in this instance, this is appropriate and this isn't appropriate. And this is what we really need to know before we start. And actually, we can live without knowing that. So actually tuning a methodology and the kind of solutions you look at to suit not only the individual building, but the way in which it's being funded and the kind of timescale constraints which that imposes. Some people take the stance that we need to deep retrofit almost every building and others say that that just takes too long and we need to switch to heat pumps faster than we can retrofit. What's your take about these competing priorities? I think if everyone just bolted a heat pump onto their existing buildings, I mean, A, they'd be paying for a much bigger heat pump than they probably needed. And B, we'd have real problems with the electrical supply. If you look at the uh, National Grid's future energy scenarios and you say, OK, so what's what's the biggest amount of heat if, of energy they think is going to be available for heating houses in 2050? And you divide it by the number of houses and the area of those houses, you get to a number that's at or around Enerfit, and that's regardless of whether it's a listed building or not. Hmm. So I think that there is an imperative to retrofit everything. If we're not going to be able to have fossil fuel boilers after 2030, then people are going to need to put heat pumps in, and I would argue that they're much better off reducing the demand first and then being able to buy a much smaller heat pump. Mm and a more affordable heat pump, and one that doesn't draw so much on the um, what are going to be the limited reserves of the national grid. Now, I think we are going to end up with an era of stepped tariffs and and um, maybe even rationing in you know, 30 years' time. I think that we heat our buildings in a really perverse way. Radiant heat, where you're heating people and surfaces, which is you know, what an open fire used to do, is a much more comfortable way of heating a space and its occupants than convection, which is what we all have. I mean, that's what central heating does. It heats up the top of rooms. Moving to things like underfloor heating are not only much more efficient, but much more comfortable. And that if we do that, then that's the kind of heating that you can efficiently run off an air source heat pump. I want to come back for a minute to this methodology that you developed at Newcourt, which I understand has now been adopted by Cambridge City Council. What does that mean exactly? What they ask for, of, of any applicant wanting to, to do retrofit work to a listed building, they ask them to demonstrate that they understand not only how the building works in energy terms, but how it works in heat and moisture terms before they start proposing any changes. And that is, you know, it's, it's two paragraphs of policy text, but that in essence is do at least the most critical bits of the work we did on Newcorp. And is this being adopted more widely? We did a presentation to Oxford, and I, I understand that's being adopted within their local plan. And I've been in conversations with Camden as well. Has other work come into the office uh, off the back of the work you've done at Newcourt? Yeah. We're working on two listed buildings at the moment. There's a sort of once you've once you've done something once, do you how many times do you really want to do it again? And it's in the nature of fifth studio to get 
to, to always be intrigued by the next impossible problem. If someone came to us with a really interesting listed building, then we'd 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 want to do it. But there's a lot of pretty unspectacular ones. I think in terms of the of our agenda and climate change, we are having given up on government policy ever changing in an appropriate way. We're talking to some fairly large estate holders in London about um, about how they might retrofit their properties because in January this year, when James Lang LaSalle issued that note that they were going to start downgrading the value of brown assets, i.e. buildings that weren't on a net zero trajectory, by up to 30%. I think if you're a, a landlord in central London with billions of pounds worth of property and you're looking at a third of its value being wiped out, then that certainly pays for an awful lot of retrofit. And and with some of them, we're exploring a kind of pattern book idea. So if you've got a coherent estate of buildings of a certain age, it ought to be possible to establish a range of ways of dealing with the retrofit of those buildings that can be agreed with the planners and actually then rolled out, you know, almost get an outline consent for a pattern book approach to yeah, an estate. That, that, I think that idea is really interesting. That idea came up at the EDGE debate. You've been a member of the EDGE, I know, for many years. It, uh, on Monday night, there was a really interesting debate. And Chris Joffe of Ex-Arab, yeah. he, he talked exactly about that. He talked about local professionals across different professions and local you know, local people coming together to, to see what makes sense in a given area. It sounds like an ambitious way of going about it, a very decentralized way of going about it, but we need to develop these pattern books to streamline the consensus process. I just despair of local or central government's ability to kind of do that. So I think we're looking at, at the other stakeholders. Okay, we'll stop there. Thank you very much, Oliver. It's Thank always you. a pleasure to talk to you. Our next guest will be Chris Proctor of ACAN's Existing Buildings Group, talking about a new toolkit for conservation areas, which explores how sustainable measures can be incorporated into retrofit and extension projects in conservation areas. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts, where you can also catch up with all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please subscribe and do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us. Thanks. <laughs>